Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Let's ask for the Lord to help us and indeed those everlasting arms and to be underneath and all around us tonight. Our Father and our God, we praise Thee, and we do indeed thank Thee that we have this opportunity to come together once more, a company of Thy people, into the very presence of God Himself. We take this opportunity not for granted, but Lord, we renew our worship and our praise unto Thee, our great God, the same from everlasting to everlasting, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. We praise Thee and we thank Thee that we come tonight a company of Thy people and ascribe greatness unto Thee, the one who is faithful in all Thy ways. And so, Father, as we confess our need of Thy help and Thy blessing tonight, we do so acknowledging that Thou art the all-powerful one, that Thou alone art able to answer and hear the prayers that we offer. And so, Father, we come and we confess our need, we ask for that help, and we beseech Thee in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to presence Thyself with us. We pray that every heart would be touched, that every life would be blessed even by the proclamation of Thy Word. And Lord, as we have even dwelt upon the truth of who Thou art even in our opening hymn, we're thankful, Father, that we have this fellowship with Thee through Thine own dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this assurance that Thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us. We have this promise that thou art ever faithful to the end. We pray not only for ourselves, but for those who cannot be with us tonight. Some, O oh Lord, laid aside through illness. Others, because circumstances detain them. We pray that thou wouldst minister to them. And for this church family, we pray that thou wouldst meet our need, each and every one. And we pray that we will all know that we are but the sheep of thy pasture. And thou art the great shepherd who goeth before us. Thou art the one who provides our every need. Thou art the one who watches over us with tender, loving care. And so now we commend ourselves to Thee, asking for the blessing which Thou alone art able to impart. We pray for that fresh cleansing in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that each of us might be even in a right relationship and indeed right fellowship with Thee as we gather together in Thy name. Hear us as we pray and lead us on, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, it is good to see you out this evening, and we pray that indeed that the Lord will continue to bless us as we study even through His Word together. Just a reminder, of course, of the program for the rest of the week, and we have our corporate time of prayer on Thursday evening at 8 p.m., and please be faithful once more in coming together, even as a company of God's people, to pray even for the needs of the fellowship and indeed the needs of our land. Remember the Friday activities with the Good News Club and the BYF, and then also the Saturday outreach. And then let's be praying as we look forward to renewing fellowship around the Word of the Lord on the Lord's Day once more. As we come to the Word of God this evening, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis in the chapter 9. The book of Genesis in the chapter 9, and we're reading together from the opening verse of the chapter, and we're going to take our reading down to the end of verse 17. The book of Genesis, the chapter 9, reading together from the verse 1 right down through to the end of the verse 17. The Word of God says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, 
upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every brother's man, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of the beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Amen. And so reads the word of the Lord. Now, this evening, of course, we're picking up the theme of the covenants of the Bible. And with God's help tonight, we're going to finish the introductory material that we commenced looking at last week, as well as beginning to consider the first of the covenants. Now, this study, remember, is not something that we desire to bore you, nor indeed desire to get bogged down in the academic material that we could as we embark upon this study. But rather, it is something that I believe will enhance our grasp of Scripture it will enliven and enrich our personal devotion, devotional life, and it will serve to excite us as we behold God's plan for the ages. And truly, as we behold that plan, we will see that His plan is drawing ever near, very near to its climax. Now, last week, we began by considering two themes by way of introduction to this series. We looked at the understanding of the word covenant, and thereby we defined it as being a promise or an agreement made within a legal framework. A promise or an agreement made within a legal framework. And so we continued then our thoughts last week to consider the underwriter of the Word. And we saw that Scripture reveals that the underwriter of the Word covenant is none other than God Himself, the one who is, the one who can and the one who will, the ever-faithful 
Jehovah God. Now tonight, that's all the time that I'm going to take to review. And if you weren't here last week and you want to familiarize yourself with that which we considered, I believe I'm right in saying it's on sermon audio and you can avail of it there. But this week we have new material to get our teeth into and we want to come to that which is fresh in the Word of God this evening. And so as we endeavor to cover the remaining introductory material, we consider firstly tonight the number of the covenants. The number of the covenants. Now as we come to consider this question, how many covenants are there found in Scripture? I want to bring you back to a fact that I shared with you last week. Namely, that the Hebrew word for covenant berif is found over 280 times in the Old Testament. The Greek word diatheke then is found 33 times in the New Testament. And combining those two numbers, they make up 1300, or, sorry, 313 occurrences of the word covenant in the Word of God. Now, don't worry. You don't have 313 sermons to sit through. I think 310 will do it, but we'll see how we do as we make our way through it. But nevertheless, as we come to consider each of these occurrences, we must understand the differences that occur within the Word of God. Many of the occurrences in Scripture involve the making of agreements between men, such as is seen in the covenant made between Joshua and the Israelites and the people of Gibeon. That's given to us in Joshua in the chapter 9, and specifically in verse 15, where it tells us Joshua made peace with them and made a league or a covenant with them to let them live, and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. This was a peace treaty that the people of Israel with Joshua as their commander entered into with the people of Gibeon. And thereby we see this as being a covenant, as being an agreement within a legal framework. Another example of a covenant made between men is, of course, that made between Jonathan and David, given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 20, and specifically the verse 16, where it tells us there, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And, we see, and so we see that occurrences of this word involve those agreements made between men and other men. Other occurrences of the word covenant in Scripture have the simple purpose of reminding the reader or the hearer of that which has been entered into, that which governs the dynamics of a certain relationship that they are involved in. And so, for the purposes of our study, they're not something that we will give our attention to as we make our way through this subject matter. Our focus, rather, is simply upon those agreements entered into between God and man, and most importantly, those initiated by God Himself. Now, having said all that, I still haven't arrived at a number. The truth is that there is a divergence of opinion when it comes to the number of covenants in Scripture. Much of this divergence is along the lines of theological frameworks, Depending on whether you employ a Reformed theological framework as you come to study Scripture, or indeed if you employ a dispensational theological framework, or perhaps you may be someone who employs a new covenantal theological framework as you come to consider Scripture. 
But whatever framework you use in your study of Scripture, that will ultimately determine how many covenants you see in the Word of God. Now, however, we must also say that it is true that within each of these theological frameworks mentioned, there are those who see a number slightly more or indeed slightly less than others who agree with them. I must say that it's not in any way my intention as we make our way through this study to confuse, nor indeed to generate any unprofitable debate. And so the study we embark upon, I say, from the outset is derived from my sincerely held beliefs, but I trust that it will be humbly delivered, recognizing that some may see it differently. And so it's not my intention to interrogate the theological frameworks, nor indeed to be dogmatic as I present my understanding of the Word of God from my theological framework. But you're going to say I still haven't answered the question. Now, some will say two covenants, simply the old and the new. For those who hold such a view, it's usually defended from Jeremiah in the chapter 31 and the verse 31, where the prophet writes, the words of God himself, the days come that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not after the covenant I made with their fathers. And in that verse, we see a reference to a new covenant. We see an inference to an old covenant. And so there are those who use this verse to defend that idea of there being simply two covenants found within the Word of God. The understanding then is that the old covenant was an opportunity given for man to prove what he could do. Of course, with the aid of all the means of grace that God could bestow, but nevertheless was a demonstration of what man could do. And therefore, whenever the new covenant is mentioned, it is then God's demonstration of what he could accomplish in and through man when he did all the work. Now, very often, this understanding of the old and new covenants is done so under the titles of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And this, thus, sorry, as we come to different Bible passages where God is making covenants with men such as Abraham, Moses, or David, in the views of those who hold a two-covenant ideology, they are but different administrations of the covenant of grace. As well as the two-covenant view with, uh, that many hold, there are those who hold the view of seven Bible covenants. Supporters of this point to the seven identifiable administrations in Scripture of God's dealings with man. And therefore state that in each of these administrations, there is also a directly connectable and identifiable covenant that God makes with man. Other viewpoints exist, including the number five and the number 12. But time doesn't allow me to elaborate or indeed comment upon those tonight. And thus I come to what I offer as my view. And I'm going to conclude this thought, the number of covenants in Scripture, with indeed presenting the view that I will use as the basis of our study in the weeks to come. For my own Bible study has led me to the view that the Word of God has six covenants identifiable within it, each unique, each specific, and each employed with the intention of seeing the fruition of a desired outcome. 
And so in response to the question, how many covenants are there found within the Word of God, I offer this response that I believe there are six covenants identifiable and worthy of our study, namely the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant. And with God's help, that is how we will embark upon this study in the weeks to come. And so we've noted there the number of the covenants. But I want to also consider, secondly, this evening, the nature of the covenants. The nature of the covenants. Now, as we read through the Bible, we can readily see that two types of Bible covenants exist. And to classify them, we use this terminology. The covenants that God makes with man are either conditional covenants or unconditional covenants. The difference between them is simply this. A conditional covenant in the Word of God is something which involves requirement from both parties. Simply put, God is saying, if you will, then I will. Now, to bring this into our modern day understanding, it might be similar to an agreement that we make with someone in regards to work needing done. Perhaps we need a room painted or the entire house painted. We'll get someone along and we'll say to that individual, if you paint the house, then I will pay. And of course, the payment is uh, required only when the work has been done. And when the work has been done, then the payment is required. And so there are obligations on both parties that need fulfilling. And that, we say, is a conditional agreement, a conditional promise that is entered into. And so, because the covenants of the Bible that we will study are those made by God with men, it follows then that in a conditional covenant, God promises to bless man, conditioned upon man's obedience to God's requirements. And so, the nature of the first covenants that we will look at, the first type of covenants we will look at in Scripture is simply this those in which God promises blessings and requires man's obedience. An unconditional covenant, on the other hand, is when God obligates Himself to fulfill His blessing, to fulfill His promise, to shower those blessings on those with whom He covenants without any requirement or without any obligation of obedience from man. Now, pause for a moment and reflect upon that which we have just discussed. God obligating Himself to bless man. And tonight, don't miss the importance, nor indeed the significance of that statement, of that biblical truth for your life and mine. We're not dealing with an abstract subject. We're not dealing with something that has no bearing, no meaning in our experience of life here on earth. Our God, remember, is a covenant-keeping God. And so, yes, whilst we give ourselves to the study of Bible covenants, and yes, the immediate context of those covenants and the immediate context of the subject matter we will study in the weeks to come is outside of our time and outside of our generation Remember, we're doing all of this to enrich our own personal devotional lives. We're doing all of this to give us hope when days are dark, 
to give us hope when the way is rough. And therefore, the hope that we have through all of this is this simple fact. God never fails to keep His Word. So, believer, tonight as we gather together to consider this subject matter of a covenant's grasp hold upon His promises, claim them, believe them, and prove them. Tonight will you hear the Savior say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Will you answer the call that he makes when he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You're here tonight and you're here to study the Word of God and you have an opinion perhaps or this perception that that which we involve ourselves in is academic, it's abstract from our time, our generation. But nevertheless, the theme of it carries right through to this day whenever faced with trouble, whenever faced with trial, God Himself has promised to fulfill that which He has spoken. Christ has obligated Himself to never leave us nor forsake us. Christ has obligated Himself that as we come to Him with all our troubles, with all our baggage, and with all our sorrow, He will give us rest. And so no matter how bleak the hour may seem, and no matter how indeed absurd the prospect may be, we live in a world with a blessed hope that awaits the returning Savior. For as he said in John 14, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And this not only cuts the cloth in our personal lives, but also enters very much into our corporate life. The corporate mission that God has given to us and I wonder tonight how you're going to respond to the challenge of Sunday past. Are you going to redouble your efforts in evangelizing the lost? Will you believe the promise? Will you prove the promise whenever he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Will we as the people of God busy ourselves in the work of God here? His mission in our locality as we claim, as we believe, and as we seek to prove his promise, I will build my church. Oh, friend, tonight this is not an abstract study. This is not an academic study. I believe with all of my heart that this is an up-to-date, relevant rallying call. To leave aside your worry and your fear to let go of your skepticism and unbelief and to cast away the spirit of heaviness, the spirit of despondency, and to truly enter into the fullness of the blessing of what it means to be the child of God. What it means to be a believer. It's a renewed call for each one of us to take Him at His word, to claim His promises, to believe His promises to prove His promises. I wonder tonight, will you respond to the challenge that is issued even here in the Word of God? Will we cease being a people of possibility? And will we become a people of expectancy? 
Will we be the believers who stand up and say, not just that it can be done, but will we stand up tonight and say, it will be done? I understand with all of my heart that for some of you tonight, just being here is a win. You couldn't face it. You didn't feel up to it. All of the circumstances of life aligned against you. Your own heart and your own spirit didn't feel like coming. And so being here tonight, it's a win. But friend, God wants you to know that as significant as that win may be in your life and in your circumstances, it's a small thing when compared to the plans and the desires that he has for you. Once more, we quote the words of God as recorded by Jeremiah, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. We gather together a company of God's people, and yes, we're looking at things that are written in generations gone past, but they're as relevant today, and the promises of God are as relevant today. Why? Because He still desires our ultimate good. And He still desires to bless us. He still desires to intervene in our lives. He still desires that we might know and believe that He is a God who makes promises, but also a God who keeps promises. A God who will work in our lives if we but cast away the shackles of unbelief. God wants you to know tonight, He wants me to know that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. He wants you to believe it. He wants you to prove it. I wonder tonight, will you? Perhaps it's also appropriate to apply it to us as a fellowship. There's no doubt the reality of knowing God's answers to prayer in recent times, is there not? Knowing the reality of God's blessing upon the fellowship. But do you think all that has happened in the weeks that have passed are the limit, are the peak to what God can do here? To the blessing that we can know together here? I believe that this study will remind us of the answer, no. For yes, it's true that he's answered prayer, and yes, it's true he's provided perhaps that which could be described as being desired and required, but I tell you that the coming of a pastor, and especially this pastor, is but a small and minute thing for God to do. His desire for this fellowship is so much greater than to see a position filled. It's to see the church filled. His desire is so much greater than to see a man come. 
It's to see scores of men, of women, of boys, and of girls come to saving faith in Him. That's the desire that He has for us. That's the desire that He has for this church. And so let's not be those people who describe it as a possibility, but let's be those people who expect it who read through Scripture and identify a God who can, but also a God who will. Let's not be a people who sit back and see how it goes over the next month or two, the next year or two. Let's not see how He works out. Let's be a people of expectancy who coming time after time expect God to build His church, expect God to equip the saints, expect God to save the lost. Expect the God who not only can, but the God who will to fulfill His will, purpose, and plan amongst us. Why? Because He's a covenant-keeping God. Peter describes the promises that you and I can avail of in 2 Peter in the chapter 1 and the verse 4. As after coming to a knowledge of Him, then in turn are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. And Spurgeon it was who said, I thumbed through my Bible many, many times, but I've never come across a broken promise. Tonight, will we claim those promises? Will we believe those promises? Will we prove those promises in our lives? in our church, in our day, in our generation. And so the nature of the Bible covenants highlights to us those which are conditional. You will, I will. Those which are unconditional. God simply says, I will. For your notes' sake, I would say that one of the six is conditional. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And all the rest, just as extra proof of the mercy and grace of God, just as further proof of His benevolent nature, all the rest are unconditional. There's something else about the nature of the covenants before we move on. It's not only how we term them conditional or unconditional, but also then the methods employed in their making. When it comes to the covenants of the Bible that we give ourselves to study, the methods employed in making them were either by sign, or some people refer to it as signature, or by sacrifice. A sign was given by God to show that a covenant had been entered into, or indeed a sacrifice was offered in order to show that a covenant had been entered into. I will elaborate more on this in the weeks to come, but this is a useful place to include it in your notes. And so, once more, we give you the breakdown of what was by sign, our signature, and what was by sacrifice. Three of the covenants that we will look at are covenants made by sacrifice, the Mosaic, Abrahamic, and the New Covenant. And three of the covenants then, the remaining three, are by sign or signature. And so we'll elaborate on that in the weeks to come, but nevertheless that is neatly fitted in there. 
in our understanding of the nature of the Bible covenants that we come to consider. The third thing that we come to this evening then is the Noahic covenant. We've looked at the number of covenants, we've looked at the nature of the covenants, and now we come to consider the Noahic covenant. As we come to this passage tonight, we know that God created a perfect world. And in that world, we know that on the sixth day, He created man. He placed man in the Garden of Eden, and at man's disposal was everything that was necessary for life and for vitality. The old serpent Satan came, and by his deception, not only of Eve, but ultimately of Adam, sin entered into the world because of the fall. Adam transgressed the very clear command of God, and thus by transgressing that clear command, sin was ushered in and death by sin. And so as Scripture continues from that event of the fall and progresses through to where we find ourselves, the testimony of the Word of God is simply this, that as man began to multiply upon the earth, God saw that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God's Word conveys to, this, to, to us this understanding, that as man lived, as man prospered, as he multiplied across the face of the earth, then as God looked down from heaven, he beheld as great wickedness abounded. There seemed to be no abating the lusts and the desires of man. There seemed to be no controlling the impulses of man. There seemed to be indeed no way of disciplining, nor indeed calling to order the affairs of man. So, Scripture records these sad words. It repented the Lord that He made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. God then purposed in his heart to destroy man. But praise God, his word tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so at the direction of God, Noah prepared an ark to the saving of himself and his house. That ark took a while in building. And as the boards were attached and as the structure took shape, There was no doubt a very visible reminder, a very visible method of warning. Mankind resplendent upon the earth that God was not best pleased. That judgment was indeed coming. And if they would not turn and repent, then death would be their ultimate doom. We know, of course, that that judgment began. The rain that had never fallen upon the earth before came from the skies above. God had already summoned Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives to enter into the ark. The Bible tells us that God himself shut the door of that ark. And there as the waters prevailed upon the entire face of the earth, The flood was a worldwide flood, a universal flood. All men everywhere 
perished by the waters of that flood. But Scripture records these words. God remembered Noah. We can stop there and we have evidence of plenty to remind ourselves that God keeps His word. That God is faithful not only in judgment, but also in mercy. But nevertheless, as we come to consider this ninth chapter of the book of Genesis, we see that Noah is one spared alive by God. And as he comes forth from that ark, remember that God had commanded, God had told him to construct, how to construct it, the dimensions, everything about it was all ordained of God, all had the fingerprint of God upon it. But having experienced that flood and having lived through it, having been preserved through it by the hand and by the mercy of God, Noah comes forth from that ark and Back up into chapter 8 just a little moment and read in verse 20. For we behold in chapter 8 and verse 20 the very first desire, the very first action of Noah as he comes forth from that ark. Tells us there, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And so we see that as Noah comes forth from this ark, his first desire was to worship. After a time of judgment, a time, no doubt, when even the very faith of Noah was tested like never before, a time whenever the purposes of God were perhaps far from clear in Noah's eyes. Yet coming from such a time, his first desire, his first action was to worship. Tonight you might ask the question, well, why did he do that? Why after an extended time of judgment? Why after the devastation of the flood? Why when stepping out into the new unknown would this man of faith have a heart to worship? Have a desire to worship? Can I suggest to you that it's my belief that he had a heart to worship? He had a desire to worship even after experiencing a time in which God's judgment was evident. Even when faced now with the uncertainty of the unknown, Noah had a desire and had a heart to worship because I believe with all of my heart that men and women of faith know that even in days when it's hard to trace the hand of God, they can always trust the heart of God. And you may be here tonight and you may say, I just don't know that God is with me. I just don't see evidence of His love or His grace in my trial. My way is dark. My enemy is fierce. And where, preacher, where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my despair? Where, oh, where is God in my tears and my sorrow? 
night I say to you, come with me. Visit Calvary, where our Redeemer died. And see upon that hill the supreme demonstration of the love of God. And behold, as His one and His only dear Son bled and died in your room and in your stead upon the tree. All because the Father deemed it to be so. So surely tonight as you ask the question, where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my trial? How am I supposed to trust His heart when I can't trace His hand? Are we not reminded of what Paul says in the book of Romans? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? For if God be for us, who, I say, who can be against us? Brother and sister, no matter what you're going through, No matter the pain you're experiencing, you can always trust the heart of the ever-loving Heavenly Father, even when you can't trace His hand. That's why I believe with all of my heart that Noah desired to worship. That's why he desired to bring his offering unto God. That's why he desired above everything else to pause and to lift his eyes heavenward. Notice the response of God to all of this, this act of worship from this man of faith. Read there in verse 21, the Lord smelled a sweet savor. The Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. This worship, this pausing even after a time of a great ordeal, many dark days, many dark nights, this pausing to worship God even when stepping out into the unknown, it pleased God. It moved God. And I believe verse 21 and 22 testify that it reminded God once more of the importance of the covenantal relationship he had and desired to have with man. And that's why we read on into chapter 9. And the Word of God says, And God blessed Noah. Now, instead of judgment, blessing, God blessed Noah. Oh, I tell you tonight, it reminds me of the statement that is attributed to Robert and Sarah Moffat. 
faith honors God. God honors faith. They were two missionaries. Labored for 10 years in the country of Botswana. For 10 years they gave the gospel. For 10 years they saw no one come to salvation. But yet after 10 years, when asked what a kind donor could provide for their work, Sarah Moffat said, a communion set. Because I know for sure it's going to be needed. It was. It arrived the very day before they had their first communion service made up of believers that God miraculously plucked his brands from the burning. I tell you tonight that God honors faith and faith honors God. And God grant us, God grant that I, God grant that you would have faith like that. Faith sees the invisible. Faith hears the inaudible. Faith touches the intangible. Faith always involves and incorporates believing, persuasion, and acting. The mind is involved. The heart is involved. The will is involved. Faith is described in Scripture as being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's further defined in Scripture as being looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher, of our faith. So I tell you tonight that as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, as we lift our eyes of the muck and the filth of this world, as we remain undistracted and undeterred by the circumstances of life, as we trust the heart of our ever-loving God, We exhibit faith. Faith honors God. And God honors faith. And faith will allow us then to know and to experience the blessing of God. Just as Noah did. Seems surreal, almost strange, doesn't it, to consider pausing, stopping, setting everything aside. In times whenever everything seems out of control or our whole world has been turned upside down, to take that moment and to worship God. But that's exactly the principle that Noah lays down for us. Matthew chapter 9 and the verse 29, the words of Christ are, according to your faith, be it unto you. And could it be that in this generation so many of us toil and struggle, so many of us experience the highs and the lows of life more frequently than God ever desires? Because our faith is small. 
because our eyes are roaming to and fro everywhere apart from being fixed upon the one who sits upon an eternal throne. You know, the right and the proper response to the question of where is God in all my suffering is simply this. He is where he always has been, on the throne, in control. You and I in our lives, we need to learn the lesson and we need to apply consistently the truth of what it means to keep our eyes fixed on God. To take Him at His word. And to continually believe in His purposes and His plans for us. We haven't even begun to Look at the covenant yet. Time is gone. But our hearts have been challenged, have they not? The challenge of the Word of God tonight has been are we men and women of faith? And if not, why not? Because as we continue in this study, the covenants of the Bible will simply serve to remind us of the God who will. The God who wants us to claim His promises. The God who wants us to believe His promises. The God who wants us to prove His promises. May God help us to be such a people. May we always remember that He is our covenant-keeping God the same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. May God bless this word to our hearts tonight. As we come to conclude our meeting, we're going to take up that theme in our last hymn. Oh, how sweet the glorious message, yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same.
Father, we praise you and we thank thee for the confidence with which we can step out in life. It's that same confidence even that Noah exhibited. Our God never fails. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our, of our praise. He's worthy of the very sacrifice of our lives there, consecrated on the altar day by day. Oh, help us to be such a people. And help us, O oh Lord, even as the old hymn writer said, to singing go along life's way, praising the Lord, praising the Lord. Depart us now with thy blessing and in thy fear and favor ever keep us. Help us to be faithful till Jesus comes or calls. Amen.